it's really, really hard to be balanced and that's okay. But what's not okay is to mindlessly just go down a path because that's where your passion's taking you and to do it recklessly. Uh, I'll just layer on and I think it's about being intentional. It's being thoughtful and intentional on what you're trying to do and, and what you want out of it. Deciding where you go and how do you get that, but also making sure that you're not getting in your own way. So I, I think getting out of our way and then being intentional on what we're trying to accomplish is two takeaways that I think are, are really important. That's Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And this week on the Rich Roll Podcast, it's all about peak performance. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to my podcast where each week I bring you the best and the brightest, the most paradigm breaking minds across all categories of health, fitness, diet, nutrition, entertainment, athletics, business, entrepreneurship, all with one goal in mind to help you manifest your best, most authentic self to help you self-actualize, which is, you know, the greatest aspiration that we could all have for ourselves and each other. I've got a fantastic show coming up for you in a couple minutes, but first we've got to take care of a little business. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of 
that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking Ons high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. All right, today's show. So today I sit down with two guests, two really awesome guys, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Now, I could easily do an entire show with either one of these guys individually, and I may do that in the future, but today they're here as the dynamic duo behind their new book, which is called Peak Performance, Elevate Your Game, Avoid Burnout, and Thrive with the New Science of Success. It's a great read. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of it. I really enjoyed it. You should all check it out because... These are two gentlemen who have each in their own respective fields achieved super impressive levels of success and really understand both the science and the process behind not only attaining peak performance, your potential, but also how to sustain it over the long term. And it's that sustainability part that's perhaps not that sexy, but is really most critical, most important. It's what separates 
the most successful people across every field, any field of expertise and prowess from the flash in the pans. So who are these guys? Well, a former consultant for McKinsey and Company, Brad Stolberg, he's at B Stolberg, S-T-U-L-B-E-R-G on Twitter, uh, is a writer. He's an author who specializes in writing about health and the science of human performance. He's a columnist with Outside Magazine and New York Magazine. He's also written for Forbes, NPR, the Los Angeles Times, Runner's World, and the Huffington Post. Uh, Brad is known specifically for his ability to merge the latest science with compelling personal stories, offering readers practical insights that they can apply in their own lives. And this new book is really a manifestation of that style. Uh, Steve Magnus. Steve is a former world-class runner who once clocked a 401 mile in high school and today is one of the world's most accomplished, respected, and in-demand track and field and cross-country coaches. Uh, in addition to serving up his duties at the University of Houston, Steve is the personal coach to several professional athletes, a bunch of Olympians, basically some of the best runners on the entire planet. Uh, as an aside, Steve was also the main whistleblower on the Nike Oregon project, Alberto Salazar doping scandal. That's a fascinating story in its own right, uh, but it's a little bit far afield of what we talked about today. So we didn't really get into that in, in today's podcast, but uh, if there's some interest, perhaps I can revisit that with Steve at a later date. Uh, what's interesting is that both of these guys are, like I said earlier, super high performers, uh, but they're also two people who both ultimately burned out, dying on the sword of this more is better or I'll sleep when I die ethos. Uh, despite being a high school phenom, Steve never reached his personal athletic potential. And despite Brad being sort of a golden boy in his younger years, he never reached his potential in the consulting world. And I personally have uh, a version of this story as well. In any event, this got each of these two guys thinking deeply about the sustainability aspect of peak performance and really how to help others not only achieve it, but prevent the failures that they experienced. And this new book which is packed with the latest science and insights from some of the world's greatest athletes, artists, and intellectuals is a result. And it's great. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And today we get into the principles behind it. So this is a conversation about, of course, the sustainability of peak performance, athletic performance, and how it can apply to non-athletic activities, practices, and careers in a non-athlete's life. Uh, it's about training versus overtraining, avoiding burnout, the courage to rest for the athletes out there. Uh, it's about habits to set yourself up to perform at your best. It's about self-actualization. It's about passion versus purpose and the mindfulness to enjoy your pursuits. In other words, purpose as the ultimate performance enhancer. Uh, it's about meditation. It's about service. It's about overcoming fear. But ultimately, it's really about identifying who you are, defining your core principles, and constructing a principled life that supports that mission over the long term. So I love connecting with these guys. They're awesome. They have great energy. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. So let's dig in. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. You guys ready to rock? Yeah. Let's do the podcast. All right. All let's right, do man. It. We're in a 
super sexy Marina Del Rey. What are we in? Like some kind of Holiday Inn situation here? I think it might be a double. Trip. Yeah, I, I feel like it's a, like a, we're in like a CIA safe room. You know, like we've cons- like some kind of weird Edward Snowden totally. like situation here. Pull the blind shut. We're gonna talk about this book. It's not out yet. So anyway, uh, super great to meet you guys. I love the book. I'm excited to talk about. Um, all the good stuff in it about peak performance, athletic performance, basically, you know, self-actualization, which is, you know, the undercurring kind of theme behind all of this. Um, Brad, you and I kind of go back virtually, like we've communicated over the last, I don't know, year and a half, two years or something like that. I've been following you for a while. I've shared your stuff in my roll call and retweeted your stuff. Steve, I know less about you and I'm looking forward to learning more about you today, but, I think maybe the best way to kind of kick off this discussion about peak performance is to contextualize it with your own personal stories in the way that you did in the book, which I thought was really great, like sort of sharing a little bit about how each of you have come into this sort of interest in this field. So whoever wants to go first. Yeah, I can uh, I can start off. Um, this is that's Brad, by the way. Yeah, we'll have to Audio. do something like that. <laughs> Get the voices down. Right? Uh-huh. So this is Brad here. Um, yeah. So coming out of undergraduate school, oh, about ten years ago, um, I took a job at a, a corporate consulting firm called McKinsey and Company, and um, super prestigious. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know if prestigious is the right word, but it was a tough tough gig to get. And, you got to be really smart. Um, thanks, Rich. Um, <laughs> that I know. It, it very quickly became all-consuming, um, and not so much because the work itself, but because of my relationship with the work. Um, I just really, really, really struggled to turn it off. Uh, I, I kind of realized that I had a problem when I would be on the phone with my, at the time, girlfriend or my family, and even though I'm talking to them, I'm thinking about like the PowerPoint slides I'm working on or the Excel spreadsheet. Uh, just struggled mightily to turn it off. And that was sustainable and I performed well for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but about a year and a half, two years in, uh, I just started feeling burnt out. Like emotions that I hadn't felt before. Just like, what am I doing here? Do I really want to be here? Is this sustainable? Is this the path that I want to be on? Um, and to put it in perspective, I mean, you were working on high-level healthcare policy on behalf of the White House, right? We're talking like 1600 pen, and you're running spreadsheets trying to figure out how to create or innovate on healthcare and make it work, right? So this is like big-time stuff. Yeah, it, it was definitely intense, um, for sure. So there, you know, there wasn't much opportunity to to rest and kick back, but there probably mm-hmm. was more than than I gave it. Um, yeah, so it was big time stuff. It was thrilling. It was super exciting for sure. Um, and are you like, just to get climb inside your mind and sorry for interrupting, but you know, at the time, are you thinking like, this is my shot? Like I've got to like sort of the pressure that you, you internalize and place on yourself to really make sure that you're maximizing this rare opportunity that you found yourself in. Yeah, I think so. That was definitely the case. I mean, I was like 22 or 23 at the time. So, um, I wonder if I'd feel the same way if I went back now. Mm-hmm. I think that there was a fair amount of ego that got caught up in too. Like it felt really good to say that I was working on that stuff. Even if I was just saying it to myself, right. it was pretty validating. Um, 
But again, you can say that to yourself and it can make you feel good and you might get a nice little hit of a feel-good neurochemical in the moment, but repetitively not sleeping, grinding, not being able to turn it off, um, not cultivating any kind of spiritual practice, just being purely in the work became pretty draining. Uh huh. And so how did that ultimately manifest itself? Do you end up just walking away from this career or what happens? So I was fortunate to have a pivot point. Um, the way that the firm operates is they encourage their consultants to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I was encouraged to go to graduate school and I did. Um, ended up studying public health and it was in graduate school that I, I did some soul searching and I kind of realized that perhaps the, the path to being a, a partner at this consulting firm wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not to say anything wrong against the consulting firm. I think McKinsey's a great place to work and I think they do great work. It's just that I struggled. My fit for that job wasn't right. Right, I get that. But I think even maybe perhaps more importantly is, is this idea of reframing what the appropriate or sustainable or optimal path towards achieving whatever goal it is that you set for yourself, as opposed to you know the burnout work every waking yeah. minute kind of program that is you know culturally reinforced. I, I mean, at that time, did you have the awareness to start rethinking that, or did that, that came in later? That came in later. All right, for and, sure. Okay, so we're going to get into all of that, but like, but like, let's hear Steve's version <laughs> of Brad's story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's funny. It's it is my own version of of Brad's story. Uh -huh. Only mine takes place in athletics. You know, I think conceptualizing mine, it it starts in high school. I was essentially a phenom. Um, my senior year of high school, I ran at the Prefontaine Classic, which is probably the biggest professional track meet in the country, mm -hmm. if not one of the worlds. And I was the, the fastest high school miler in the country, third fastest in the world. And at that point thought, man, like I have the world at my fingertips. Like I'm, you are Prefontaine. Yeah, like that's like it. You just like, need the mustache. Exactly. Like, yeah. Just grow the hair out, get the mustache. But the, that's what you envisioned and that's like Olympics were what was all in my head so uh -huh. at that point and you're I mean, 18 and you you, 18. you grew up where Houston Texas uh-huh so you know it, and I was obsessive about it you know much like Brad said in his story that he was all about McKinsey and healthcare and stuff I mean I was running as a high school kid 100 plus miles a week um, in the Houston heat and humidity you know, I was in bed at 9 p.m. I didn't do the social life high school thing. Like, mm -hmm. I would skip my prom and all that stuff. Like, my, my parents hated me on vacations because I'd, I'd run 16, 17 miles a day and drive them nuts while they were trying to, like, you know, tour around some, right. some vacation spot. And so you're at this meet, and and uh, this is where you're gonna be able to put your put your wares on display for the world, right? And so yeah. what happens? So I ran the mile in four minutes and one second. Mm -hmm. So- And you do you win this race? I did not, but uh -huh. because it was the best athletes in the world. It's not just high school, it's everybody. It's everyone. To uh -huh. give you an example, Bernard Lagat was there, who right. is, I mean, it's multiple time world champion, Olympic medalist and that things. and. Like I was, I was running, I was ahead of Alan Webb, who is the American record holder in the mile until 
he came by me with maybe like 60 meters left in the race. Mm -hmm. So 401, which establishes you, does that make you the fastest high school miler in the country? Yes. In the yes. world? It was third third, third fastest in the, in the world that and, year. And like sixth fastest all high time. school all time, yes. right? So superstar. Yeah. And like you must have been stoked, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I was a little bit peeved that I didn't get under four. Right. But I mean, I was I was stoked. I was on top of the world. As I said, I thought that. And like, you're a senior in high school. Yeah. Uh -huh. I I thought I was classic phenom. Like, right. I'm gonna go do anything that I want to in this sport. And then what? what I and what happens? I never ran a step faster. Like that is still my my best mile I have ever run. Uh -huh. I went to college burned out i did the exact thing that you know i think anytime you struggle as i said all right i'm gonna put my head down and do more and i went from 100 miles a week to 120 miles a week to you know becoming more obsessive and compulsive on like training as hard as i could because i thought the solution was put your head down mm -hmm. grind away be tough get it done and all i did was keep digging Making that it hole. worse and worse and worse yeah. yeah and the more tired you are and the worse that's happening your solution is to then double down again exactly right. and that's all it was my whole college career was was going backwards every year as i doubled down and doubled mm -hmm. down and doubled down and and so did you run throughout college yes you kept you just you were a glutton for punishment i was yeah i mean i ran <laughs> yeah. myself like I, uh -huh. by the end it was like you know, I was a, a walking zombie at some point. And at no point you have a coach who pulls you aside and says, listen, man, I, I know you're you're all up in your head about this, but like we need to find a new way. You know, no, I didn't. I, I mean, I was lucky in that I had some coaches who had done some great things as athletes. Mm -hmm. But um, normally, even at the college level, you're used to having to have to motivate athletes to do things. Yeah. And I was the kind of kid who... If you told me I, if you gave me free reins, I was gonna push that edge as far as I could go training wise. Right, right. So no one was there to put the reins on and say, hey, like, stop doing this. Like, yeah, it's this idea that uh, that that performance is a linear equation, exactly. right? And it's a function of how much work you put in and how much you're willing to sacrifice and dedicate yourself to. And should you do that, you will get the result that you seek. Exactly. And it becomes you know, really painful when you realize not only is that not working, it's moving you further and further away from your goal. Exactly. And as a young person without that much life experience, and you know, it's, it's hard to like have perspective enough or the confidence uh, to step outside that, unless you have some kind of mentor or coach who can like do that for you. Yeah, you do, you you you're exactly right. Like you don't have the knowledge or the perspective mm -hmm. to do it. I mean, you just the best way I can describe it is like your your vision kind of narrows, and all you see is this you know path forward of work harder until yeah. it eventually kind of all blows up in your face. Well, what I love about this is that my own. You know, my own personal experience is like a weird hybrid of like both of your, it's like a less sexy <laughs> hybrid say. of both of your stories. Like I wasn't a phenom, like I was pretty good at swimming and I wasn't working at the White House, but I was like successful sort of in the lawyer world, like in the corporate context. So I have, I'm able to relate to both of your experiences in some regard. And, you know, I, the, the last time I swam, I swam my best times when I was 18, 19 years old, you know? So, and, and I did, I w I'm convinced looking back that I was overtrained in my entire swimming career because that was an era in which volume, 
dictated everything. And I was a glutton for punishment, and I wasn't the most talented swimmer, but I realized early and often that if I was willing to put in more work than the guy next to me, that I was progressing more quickly. And, you know, I swam the butterfly events, which were considered, you know, that's where the people that liked punishment would go. (laughs) And I would do ridiculous sets, and I got results. But then at a certain point when you can only escalate that volume to a certain point before it becomes diminishing returns. And I think when you're 17, 18, you can absorb that level of volume and punishment. But at a certain point, it starts to work across purposes. And if you don't have another idea of where to go with it, you're just you're digging your grave. And I walked around like a zombie through college, you know? And then I started drinking and then it got worse from there. But then I found myself in the corporate world and I was, you know, working those 70 or 80 hour weeks without any self-awareness to look at the people above me and say, do I even want that person's life? I just was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and it took, you know, a big shakeup in my life in order to like get me to look at it in a different perspective. But um, but that's a long roundabout way of saying that that, you know, I love what you guys are doing, and I, I think it's a beautiful kind of um, collaboration that you guys have created to bring your two different perspectives to this subject matter that I think is in great need of redress, especially in this culture that we find ourselves in, in which it's a, you know there's this heightened sense of like you know you got to hustle and you know sleep is for the week and, and and all that kind of stuff. It's like we got to find a sustainable path towards success. So you know, tell me. Uh, you know, how you conceptualize peak performance, like how do you define it? What does it mean to you? And what have you learned through your, not just your own life experience, but the research that you guys have have put together and put into this book? So Brad here, I would, um, I would say that how I would define peak performance is sustainably getting the most out of yourself and feeling good about it. and how to get there, it's it's an entire section of the book. Um, we call it the growth equation, which is stress plus rest equals growth. Mm-hmm. And I that's think, the big secret. And I, that's yeah, it, yeah. that's the secret. And yeah. I think that, Rich, what you were alluding to is that society pushes us to really focus on the stress part of that equation, but not so much on how to temper that and manage it and mm-hmm. follow it up with enough rest to elicit growth. And when I say stress, I don't mean stress as in like fighting with your spouse or, or even like being anxious about your boss. I'm using the word um, more scientifically like a stimulus. So the stimulus in swimming might be the log that 75K week. The stimulus in a more intellectual pursuit might be to really, really grind and work hard on solving a problem. And that's all good. You need to do that to grow. Um, you want to take on challenges. You want to get outside of your comfort zone. But if you don't insert periods of rest and recuperation, rather than grow, you get injured, you burn out. I mean, mm-hmm. just think about lifting a muscle or lifting a weight with your bicep muscle. And if you pick up way too much weight, you're going to tear your bicep. If you lift weight nonstop all day, you're going to fatigue and your muscle will literally burn out. If you don't pick up enough weight or you pick up hardly any weight, nothing's going to happen. So you need to find the right weight, do it to a point that is stressful enough to stimulate some growth but then follow that up with rest. Mm-hmm. And we learned that that applies, I hesitate to use the word universally because there are always exceptions, but that equation applied pretty broadly as we reported out across uh, great performers in various fields. It's super interesting. I mean, any you know runners, swimmers, triathletes, 
they are pretty well versed in this idea of you know stress and rest and and the periodization of training and this idea that you have periods of intense work and then periods of overemphasized rest and this is the you know this is the the process of how you get better over time and i think you know even on a fundamental level like a lot of athletes don't understand that you don't get better during the training you get better in the period in between the training sessions right. you know just that like basic concept alone is like oh wow like i never thought about that um, it's so true but i've never like until your book broached the subject like i had never really conceptualize that idea applying to anything outside of sport, like the idea that it applies intellectually. And of course it makes sense. Like you hear stories of these great thinkers and artists who were sort of deemed lazy, you know, and, and yeah. perhaps they were just in their rest phase, you know, in between their work phase where that kind of creativity percolates up. And you talk about that in the book, like when do you have your, you know, when do you have that sort of light bulb moment or that creative impulse? Like it doesn't happen when you're grinding. It happens when you're, when you're at rest. Yeah, in the shower or when you're <laughs> on a, on a yeah. walk through the woods. Exactly. So, um, so you know, maybe like uh, let's talk a little bit about like the, the nuts and bolts of this, though. Like, I, I, you know, I can understand that intellectually, but let's say somebody's just first of all, like, why should we even care about peak performance? Like, is this important? Like, what if I just want to go to work and go home and be happy? <laughs> Well, well, I think <laughs> I think the part of I it, envy you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the part of it is is it's peak performance defined for each individual, uh -huh. and you get to like define what that is and what, and that's dependent on what your goal and all that is. And I think there's a couple misnomers in it in the sense that when we say like peak performance, um, we mean not only like what you can do but it's what you want to do. And you mm -hmm. kind of create those parameters around things. So uh, I would say that that's number one. Number two on why you should care about this stuff is because it's sustainable. Like it's really, like, it's really easy to work really hard. Mm -hmm. People think, oh, it's, it's really tough to go grind away and get all the work done and work the 80 hours weeks. No, like anybody can do that if they're motivated and they choose to, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. Right. And like what we're conceptualizing around peak performance is how to maybe reach the levels that I did as an athlete or Brad did um, in the corporate career, but to be able to be comfortable with that and do it for not only, you know, two years, but 10, 15, 20, 30, however long you want to and give you the choice and the power to decide that versus like, having this burnout decision like forced upon mm. you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's tricky. Um, it's challenging. It's a little bit of like a mind fuck because <laughs> I'm, th I'm thinking of you as this young 18 year old, you know, phenomenal runner and thinking, all right, well, what if he just had like a healthier relationship with performance, right? Right. But had you had that, would you have been on the blocks running 401 at 18. Like, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe, you know what I mean? Certainly you would have had longevity in your career. Would you have achieved that level of, of, of performance? Because, it, and this is through the filter of my own yeah, perception yeah. and experience, because I'm like a crazy workaholic <laughs> and an extreme person. Yeah. And, and my whole life has been, you know, early bird gets the worm and, and like, you gotta work outwork the next guy. Yeah. And like, I burned out, like I'm, a, I'm yeah. like you guys, like I get that and still it's like, 
It's yeah. uncomfortable, the idea of like creating like a balanced, sustainable approach to this. It doesn't feel the same. Like and, I don't get the jolt. And I think that's where you know? there's a big misconception is I don't think it's about balance. I don't think we think it's about balance in the sense that, you know, I work with some um, really elite athletes. I mean, I just had two who uh, finished first and second at the U.S. half marathon championships. And I'm trying to get them to make Olympic teams and, you know, medal and all those stuff. So we're trying to maximize performance. So this is almost like a little experiment is can we get that like that max level while still making it sustainable? Mm -hmm. And I think what what I found and what we found in researching this book is that there's going to be periods where you need to go into that like obsessive work mode. Right. But then you have to have like the self-awareness to be able to like shut it off mm -hmm. and know that like this is my secret power almost. Like I need to go into that obsessiveness and get like get that jolt that is my power. But then when I no longer need it, when it's no longer moving me forward, then I have to have the ability to turn it off and go have the as we call in the book, the courage to rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a definitely a different kind of discipline that I think gets overlooked, and that's 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 hard for athletes. They they know how to be disciplined about the hard work, exactly. but they don't know how to be disciplined about the holding back. And you know, Brad, this is we talked about I was this just in that say, first what, phone call when I interviewed you. For you. Yeah, man, we are on the uh -huh. same wavelength. So I was just going to say, um, when I interviewed Rich for a story in Outside Magazine on passion. Um, what I learned is that passion is really a gift and it can also be a curse. And I think that when passion meets self-awareness, that's when the magic happens. But passion is inherently a force working against self-awareness. Um, just think about when you are in high school and you set eyes on the girl that you have a crush on, you get tunnel vision and you are just after that. Uh -huh. And that is like one of my favorite, most basic examples of passion. But that can manifest itself in a career, in a sporting event, in how do you overcome that tunnel vision and the, the biochemicals that are behind it that are like the dopamine is being released. I mean, you are like being driven by your entire biochemistry to go after that. So how can you have the self-awareness to pull up and A, say like, is this really what I want to be doing? B, back to that definition, is this sustainable? Is it making me feel good? and see if not, how can I recalibrate and adjust? But Brad, come on, that's a lot that's of work. That's hard to that's, do. That's a lot of work, especially when every message that I'm seeing on Instagram and on Twitter is like, you gotta be passionate, live your passion, you know, you, 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 get, you know, unleash the passion, you know what I mean? So come on, how are we gonna do this? You know, it's, it's I'm with you and I'm on your page and I think you're correct. Uh, but the practical aspect of like parsing that and applying it to your life, I think, is you know, is a harder is a harder journey. I mean, Ryan Holiday talks about this too. Yeah. He's written about like forget about your passion or who cares about your passion. You yeah. know what I mean? And how your passion can lead you astray because it 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 has such powerful you know headlamps on it. It's blinding. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, this is not something that is in in peak performance, um, but a practice that I have adopted for myself by almost by happenstance is um, just reading and thinking more about mortality. And I find that if I read a really, really moving book that has death as a central theme, there's nothing like that to shock my system to 
do some like very, very clean, clear evaluation. Like, is this what I want to be spending my time doing? Um, and now I'm happy because like I love writing and, and I, I'm able to do it in a way that leaves room for other things that I care about. Like Steve said, I, I'm by no means a balanced person. I don't think of myself as balanced. I kind of envy someone that can be balanced and just have everything in alignment, but I'm not sure if that really exists. Um, but I, I, I've been able to do enough self-reflection to actually like make certain decisions to pull the plug on things when old me might not have. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent, a struggling teen or battling addiction yourself. I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. 
Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I should say that, you know, you're, you say you're not balanced and I'm interested, like I, when you said that, I was thinking about how prolific you are because you turn out like a lot of articles compared to, you know, the average journalist, magazine journalist. I mean, you're writing, you're, it seems like you're just coming out with stuff all the time. So is that a reflection of you doing that, what Steve was talking about, like going into the intense hole and cranking it out and then coming back out again? Yeah, and, and I've really made a, uh, a practice of what I preach, I guess. Um, so I try to follow that growth equation, the stress plus rest equals growth. So mm -hmm. I'll go into the whole, uh, we talk about this in the book, I'll, I'll, I try to chunk my day into blocks of between 60 and 90 minutes of deep focus, and then I'll come out of that. I mean, you've written, I don't know mm -hmm. what your process is, but a lot of, lot of prolific writers will adopt such a process. Um, and then I'll come out of it. So while I'm not balanced in the sense that I write, I run, and I love my wife, and I'm probably not a good friend. I might not be the best family member. Yeah. So I, I still wouldn't say that I'm balanced, but in the things that I do, I do them in a way that's sustainable. Whereas old me, like more Twitter followers, more articles, yeah. dopamine, 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 I would write myself into the ground. Right, so you're apportioning your energy in between the things that are most important to you in your life. Yes, right. and, and, I, and I think that's, I think you're hitting on something that is nuanced, but really important, which um, again, maybe we're hitting a broken record. Like it's not about balance, it's about deciding what is important to you mm -hmm. and then going all in, in a way that allows you to go all in for a long time. And I think a lot of it is like about knowing what, how much energy you have to give and what's sustainable. And I think the, actually the writing of this book was a great example. I mean, we finished this thing in what? Three months, maybe less, yeah, less was, time than that. It was and, wild. And it was, it was wild. you know, we would do that. We would be like obsessive about it for you know a couple hours, and then like walk away and do something else, and then uh -huh. come back obsessive about it. And we had this like we followed what was in the book essentially of like when to stress and when to rest. But then there would be periods. I mean, Brad lives in in California. I'm in Texas. There would be periods when we were together for like three or four days, and it would just be like hammer it home full on because we know we have this specific block and if we like it's like doing a really hard workout if we need to go over the edge then this is the time to just go over the edge and once we're done like mm -hmm. we'll take some time come back out of it and make sure we rest and recover so the book was a great example and, and also forcing us to practice what we preach mm -hmm. all right so we have the the stress and we have the rest for growth Let's talk about like the next phase, which is the priming, right? You talk about this in the second sort of section of the book. So what does that mean? Yeah, I think I think it's all about setting yourself up 
for uh, performance. And that, whether that performance is running a race or writing a book or giving a speech, is what we found is that regardless of what the performer was doing, mm -hmm. is they would do things intentionally, set up routines so that they were at their best or gave them their best shot to perform on, on that given day. And, and what that means is the, the favorite example I like to give is we talked to a, a drummer who was Taylor Swift's drummer named mm -hmm. Matt Billingsley. And we just said, hey, I don't know anything about music. Like, I don't know anything about drums. Like, walk us through your process when you're about to perform in front of, you know, 80,000 people. And he starts walking us through like how he gets ready for the drums and how he does like various exercises and stuff. And I'm, I'm waiting the whole time to hear him say, and then I pick up my drums and I like go through things. But he just kept walking. He was like, then I do arm swings and then I do like these stretches and then I get my mind right. And then the show starts and I'm like, you didn't talk about drumming <laughs> and you know he he's also a personal trainer and he said yeah like my warm-up is just like I, what i would do getting ready for a lifting session or getting ready to go run a 5k race because he said i need to warm up my my body mm -hmm. and then i use that to warm up my mind to put me in the space that i need to mm -hmm. and i think regardless of whether you're sitting down at your desk to go right great writers set themselves up and set their entire environment and the routine up so that when they need to write, then they're going to write. It's not haphazard. Yeah, I think it's it, it's universal across anybody who's a high performer in whatever field they're in. They have a routine that they stick to, and that routine is going to vary wildly. Um, but they're conscious and they're mindful about their approach leading up to it. Let's say they're you know they're pitching a venture capitalist on their startup, or it doesn't matter what it is. But it's interesting how these examples so often root back in athletics because that's the one discipline <clears throat> where there's actually some thought that goes into the benefits yeah. of that. Like athletes practice this, you know, across every sport, and yet it's so you know it really doesn't spill over into other areas of 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 culture and performance. During during the, the writing of this book, I wrote out of one coffee shop at the same time of day with the same coffee on a computer that I only used for writing the book. Uh-huh. Um, what do they call that? Like the computers that are like cut off from the internet? Like they're they're called like gray box yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, that, like, that was me. Back to um, the Snowden. I was just uh, thinking that we're back like, in the CIA yeah, room on yeah. my computer that no one else can <laughs> right. access. Unhackable, <laughs> um, totally. But um, yeah, and I, in, 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 you know, we, we write in the book that um, it stems from what in the early 1900s was called behaviorism, which is like if you you know ring a bell and give a dog a treat, the dog learns to associate the bell with the treat. And while that science has evolved quite a bit, like the fundamental pairing of a cue with an action. There's actually lots of recent science that that still holds pretty true. Um, something called affordances. So when you see a chair, the motor neurons in your brain that are going to tell your body to sit start firing before you have any conscious thinking about sitting in that chair. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that you can create a routine that you associate with what you are going to do, you know, what, what the desired action is, um, it, it helps like it helps bring about where you want to be 
Yeah, you're sort of re uh, reaffirming like a like a habit or a pattern in your brain, and you're you're removing decision fatigue yeah. because there's that that association, and so it's almost like a stoic Spartan sort of approach. Like I, I read that um, like Jonathan Franzen like moved up to Santa Cruz and he rented some crappy room that was just terrible, you know, and just had like a like a you know, like a wooden desk and an uncomfortable chair and nothing else in the entire room just to remove every single distraction to make it impossible to avoid doing the one thing that every fiber in your body is going to resist yeah. doing. Why is writing so hard? I can't believe I'm but I can't believe you guys wrote this book in 3 months. I'm pissed now. <laughs> well, you know the secret is there's two of us. So, uh, yeah. like it was like whenever I got all. stuck, it's like, "Oh, Brad, I don't know what to do. Like you take this now." Uh-huh. Do you guys go running together? Do you Steve, no. do you still run? I do still run. Do you? I have a good uh-huh. relationship with running now. Go running so. together. I would need to be on like my bike in the arrow <laughs> position and keep up with this guy. <laughs> uh-huh. So how did you I'm interested this is a little bit of a tangent but like I'm interested in how you sort of uh, maybe repaired is the wrong word but like kind of recalibrated your relationship to running in the wake of having like a less than you know, sort of, uh, or a, you know, a collegiate career that was disappointing to you. Yeah, you know, it actually t- ties a lot to the purpose chapter of our book, um, in the sense that when I was burnt out and done, my whole entire identity was wrapped around running. Like that was it. Like I was Steve the runner, and like nothing else mattered or existed. So it was really a process of unraveling that and figuring out, like, okay, like what else is there to me like what else do i enjoy what else are my interests and what really got me over the hump is like getting outside of myself and stop being so like individual self-focused because Mm -hmm. that's what running does to you in the sense that like all that mattered really was my performance and i was you know for Everybody else in the world is a puppet. Exactly. So for, you know, four years through high school, four years through college, all that I was focused on is how do I get Steve to run faster? And what changed my relationship was volunteer coaching. And all of a sudden my perspective changed because now it's not me. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, 35 high school kids who have various levels of talent and, you know, love of the sport. It's like, okay, how do I help them? So it was really, you know, getting away from myself and helping others and helping others realize what is good about this sport that reminded me of like, oh, like, yeah, that's why I started in the first place. Like, that's why I fell in love with it. That's exactly what Anthony Irvin told me about his relationship with swimming and what got him to come back. You know, service, you know, getting outside of yourself. And it's a, you know, it's a theme as old as time and you hear it time you know everywhere you go like a, I'm I'm long time in recovery and it's a big theme of recovery right mm-hmm. like you devote your life service you put that first ahead of everything else and your life gets better and it's so anti you know you're just like what like how does that make <laughs> yeah. sense like I, that's not on my agenda you know what I mean but my experience and the experience of, of everybody I've ever seen truly practice this is their life expands in direct proportion to the extent that they are of service to others. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that to the extent that you can make yourself a coach, make yourself a coach. So Steve, very literally, has made himself a coach. I'd say that I listen to your podcast. What you do, you are coaching. It's a different medium. And in the way that I write, I am trying to coach too. And I think that 
it, like Steve said, when you get outside of yourself like that, paradoxically, it gives you more self-awareness. So not only does it feel good to be helping other people, but I think it's easier to kind of step back and be like, am I doing this right? Mm -hmm. When the beneficiary on the other end isn't yourself, but someone else. I think the idea of service gets, I agree, thank you for that. I, you know, I think the idea of service gets confused uh, or conflated with this idea that like you're gonna be at, you know, like serving soup at the soup kitchen to the homeless, and it can be that, and that's great, but it can be something as simple as, you know, saying something nice to the cashier at Ralph's or, or, you know, just making yourself available to help or calling up a friend who's having a hard time. You know, and I think a lot of people think, well, I don't really have that much to give. I'm not an expert in anything. I, there's nothing that I can coach. But I think we all have life experience and there are always people that are further down the ladder in some regard who could benefit from a helping hand. And, and, and more than that, I think it's just about stepping into that mindset so you're thinking in that way, and that becomes like, it's a muscle that you have to flex until it becomes an instinct. And you know, I'm not saying I'm great at it, you know, I'm super selfish, you know what I mean? Like I have to work hard yeah. to do it, and when I do it, then I'm like, oh yeah, my yeah. life's working better now. You know, you can almost do it for selfish reasons, you know, like yeah. I'm gonna selfishly be unselfish so that my life gets better. So I'm not necessarily recommending that. I mean, I would imagine the spirit of doing it selflessly is better. Um, but I couldn't agree more with you than that. And I, I think it, you know, goes back to the kind of the arc of the book or the structure of the book, which is, you know, it, it kind of culminates in this idea of, of finding a purpose outside of yourself that that directs all of this energy that you're putting into whatever it is you're trying to, you know, achieve that peak performance with. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, purpose is the ultimate performance enhancer. I mean, it sounds strange to be like, oh, find a purpose so you can enhance performance, right? It's almost like being selfish. But but, but if you don't know, like, can you, you can't just band-aid on a purpose. I don't right. Maybe you no, can, it but like, it's like, real. yeah, it like, and how does somebody, felt. in the same way that it's like, I don't know what I'm, I don't have a passion. All right. I don't know what my purpose is. Like, how do you, how do you speak to somebody who's sitting in that chair? So it. It's in the book, um, and we can go through it a little bit now, but there's, uh, there's a researcher at the University of Michigan, his name's Dr. Vic Strecker, and he has a remarkable personal story um, of overcoming loss through finding a purpose and helping others. And for him, loss wasn't like not hitting the mile time, mm -hmm. he lost a daughter um, and, and just had, she had health issues, very, very like gut-wrenching personal story. He overcame it through purpose. Um, and he didn't used to study purpose, but he saw what having this self-transcending purpose did for himself, and he redirected his academic career into studying purpose. And he's actually developed an evidence-based process to help individuals come to a purpose. Um, and it works. And, and so what is that process? So the, the process begins with identifying your core values. Um, and those core values can be things like creativity, community, um, intellectualism, athleticism. I think that I'd have to look in the book, but I'm pretty sure he defines them as like the things that are your north stars, your guiding principles that you hold most dearly. And most people, if you give them some time to think about it, can come up with a couple of core values. Um, then the second step would be to personalize those core values. So what does creativity mean to you? What does community mean to you? And then you go through this process of personalizing your core values. Eventually you rank them. And 
at the end, it's only like a 20 minute process of this pro and again, it can be 20 minutes. It can also be a lifetime. Um, but at the end of this process, you are asked to reflect on your core values, how you personalize them, how you rank them, the relationship with each other, and then come to a purpose statement. Um, I went through this exercise when Dr. Strecker had first introduced um, this process, and I had no clue really like what my purpose was. And I came out with cultivate positive energy and share it, mm -hmm. which I would not have done on my own. Mm -hmm. But now that is like on a little sticky note on my mirror. And I think that, I mean, whether or not I'm a better performer for it, it's arguable, but I feel better. And it's a nice reminder, like, okay, like, what am I, what am I going to do today? It's also wide open. I mean, that, you know, you can express that in, you know, countless ways, right? So it's not pigeonholing you into one specific thing. Like my purpose is to, you know, whatever, you hey. know, save the tigers or something like that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it can be, it's adaptable. Uh, yes. I right. think a lot of people get too specific on like passion and purpose. And mm -hmm. they think I need this one tiny thing and I'm gonna do only this. And I think what this process does is it, A, it gets you to think about it and become self-aware about it and ask, ask the questions that most of the time you don't. Because when, when people who don't have like a purpose or haven't thought about it, when they get asked that question, they almost go to this default like, oh, that's too big of a question for me to think about. Mm -hmm. I don't wanna go there. And what this does is it breaks it down simple enough so that you can kinda get a better understanding of what you're looking for. But then, then on the other hand, it's like we just said, is it doesn't narrow it down into saying like, my purpose is to run the fastest mile that I ever can, right? right. It gives you this broad um, understanding, this broad statement that can apply in multiple places in your life. It's also not unrelated to goal setting, which is another area that yeah. I want to explore with you guys. Like the idea of purpose and, and goals are, are sort of bedfellows in, in certain respects. Um, you know, and I'm still kind of sitting in the chair of the guy who's like, I don't know what I'm passionate about. I don't know what my <laughs> purpose is. And, 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 and I think, you know, look, I'm doing that because I think that's most people, honestly. And I think it creates a paralysis because until they, they're, they're waiting to get struck by lightning yes. to have this epiphany before they make a move, well, right? As opposed to if you could have a general sense of cultivating positive energy, whatever, like some, some, even if it's the most vaguest notion of what your purpose is, at least it's something to then take an action on. And I think this also gets into like getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, which is another thing you guys talk about, like taking an action without having to know where that's gonna lead you. It doesn't have to be anchored to a goal, but it has to be, it, it, there has to be a doing. You know what I mean? There has yeah. to be an implementation of that idea into a specific action. Yeah, you know, one of the examples that I can give is when I work with my college team, is a lot of times before like big races, we talk about purpose and goals. And, you know, in the past, um, before, you know, understanding all this stuff and researching, we would have individual goals of, you know, I want to place top five or run this time in the 5K or whatever. And it works okay, right? There's, there's benefits to that kind of goal setting. But what we've shifted more to is like, as a team, like what do we, what is our purpose as a team? What do we want people to, to know about us when we cross the line? And sometimes it's, it's as simple as like, we wanna be the guys that are underdogs, 
who don't expect to run well, but when they look at us crossing the line, they know that we gave everything we got. Mm-hmm. And that's some, as simple as that. Um, and that works really powerful because it takes them away from like all that matters is like how I do. And if I'm having a bad day, then I can just kind of throw in the towel and like it doesn't matter. Right. To realizing that it's not just me, it's you know the seven, eight, nine, ten other guys on this line that all have the shared common goal or purpose, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And you just see better and consistent performance out of that. Right, because it transcends the individual exactly. performer. Right. Yeah. There, um, there's some pretty interesting research that um, that we we stumbled across in in writing the book on this notion of fatigue occurring in the brain before the body. And if you think about this in evolutionary terms, it makes a lot of sense because your your brain is protecting your literal self, and when you're out and you feel pain that's the brain telling the body whoa you might hurt yourself like let's let's pull back and it got us thinking well if you can again not just pay lip service to it but really feel and deeply hold a purpose that is beyond just yourself can you kind of like quiet that part of your brain the answer is there has been it's it would be very hard to do such a study Mm -hmm. to, to show that that is in fact the case But there have been some interesting studies with neuroimaging that shows that when individuals reflect really deeply on their core values, they have a better response to threats. Mm -hmm. Um, In the sporting world, you hear tons of anecdotes of when people do things that were thought to be impossible, rarely do they finish and say like, oh, I was thinking about being champion, or I was thinking about all the money I'm going to bank winning this race. It's generally, I was thinking about my family and how much they've sacrificed me, or I was thinking about my friend with cancer, or if they're religious, I was thinking about God. Um, so again, they're, they're fueled in their performance by something that is beyond themselves. It's a longer term view also, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, you're, <clears throat> you're pursuing something not for the short term result of whatever goal, like running a sub four minute mile, yeah. <clears throat> but because it's in alignment with some higher purpose or this core set of values. Um, and that's a more sustainable energy source, right? And, and it totally, and it holds true off the road too. There, there's an enormous meta-analysis that we cite that looked at um, workers across industries and they found that people that have jobs that they connect to a greater sense of meaning tend to perform significantly better than those that are motivated by something like a paycheck. Right. Um, and you know, back to that fear thread, because I think about this a lot, and, and if you just were to ask yourself, like, would you take a risk for, and then if on the other end of that, it might be $100 or like to help a good friend or to, or, or to do something for someone else, I know that I tend to answer yes and, and I have less fear of messing up if I'm doing the action for someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of happens automatically. We, we talk about in the book um, this notion of superhuman strength, which is that um, th- these things happen not frequently, but, but more frequently than we would have thought. When you get like a kid or a pet stuck under a car, and the person comes over and lifts up the car. Right. And that's like the ultimate example of this because they are totally overcoming whatever in their brain is telling their body, like, you are going to hurt yourself to do this. 
And my hunch is that if you were to say, you know, Rich, if you lift this car, I'll give you $7 million. There's no way you're gonna mm-hmm. lift the car. But man, God forbid someone you care about is stuck under that car dying, you have a shot at lifting the car because it's happened. Right, 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 right. Yeah, that's super interesting um, where the brain can override the body in that kind of way. Um, but what you said just prior to that has me thinking about identity, the psychology of identity, right? So if you're, if you're like a young Steve and your identity is totally wrapped up in running a sub four minute mile, that's different than an identity of somebody who just who loves running and running as a form of self-expression. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, like just performing at your peak just brings you joy. You know what I mean? So then you remove the fear of failure because whether you run under four minutes doesn't really matter because you are living in alignment with your core values. Exactly. I mean that that sums things up exactly. I mean, if I had a bad race when I was 18 years old. Like I would see myself as a failure. Mm-hmm. Like not just like, oh, I failed at running. It was I, Steve, am a failure. And you see that along whether it's runners or other pursuits, is if they are tied to their identity to that activity, mm-hmm. and they see themselves as that identity, then you get this fear of failure, as you mentioned. And they stop trying to um, to play to win. And they play not to lose, right? Because it's and just that's a, that's a fear-based approach, exactly. Yeah. Mentality. And I, and I I wonder if a lot of folks like you mentioned that are sitting back, kind of like I don't know what my goals are, I don't know what my purpose is. Maybe it's that there's actually like this fear because like you know changing paths and going on a new direction is a pretty scary thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if part of it is overcoming fear. And like I look at Steve and, and, and you know, even yourself, Rich, like I, I don't think that any of us would say that we made a very rational decision to come in and take chances and, and you know, do what we do now. It happened because we all burnt out in one way or another or had these like inflection points where we had wake up calls. So I can't tell someone like, oh, here's exactly how you find your purpose and goals because for me it was to burn the fuck out. <laughs> right. and, and like that's not advice that I'd want other people to have. But I wonder if part of the reason that I, I burnt out was because like I, my identity was in like this like young gun consultant rock star that eventually got you know a, a gig at the White House for a summer. And right, you're supposed to be. To that. You're supposed to be on Pod Save America right now, not on my podcast. Right, you're talking to Love It and, uh, and John Favreau yeah, about I healthcare mean, policy. And, and it would have, and, yeah. and, and it would have been a totally different path. And like maybe if I would have, if I would have had the wisdom to pursue it more sustainably, like maybe that's where I'd be. Mm-hmm. Um, but here I am, and and it wasn't a conscious choice back then. Um, but now I'm, I'm hoping that I'm making more conscious choices, you know, t- to, to be more explicit about, I guess, the goals I'd want to take on. Yeah, I mean, I think you have, to, you have to give yourself permission, first of all, to be self-reflective enough to ruminate on what it is that, that brings you joy and then have the courage to find, give that expression, even if it's in just a really small way, you know? And I think there, I think, I think with guys it's hard, you know, guy it's just we're just on a path, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like we got it we're climbing the corporate ladder and you know the pressure to be alpha and all that kind of stuff gets in the way of that. And I think it so it's I think it's and it's hard for guys to talk about like 
being content in their lives or being happy in their lives. It's just, it's like not cool to talk about that, you know, but the truth is there's a lot of guys out there suffering in careers that they're, they, they don't like, and they're there as a result of circumstance or social or familial pressure that have placed them in situations that they really don't want to be in. And there's, there's a sense of feeling trapped and like, this is it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost like, especially if you've devoted years to that path, if you're along that path a while, and I know I felt this. You're with so running, in. Yeah. It, it's like, what else do I do? Like you've been zoomed in all the way where you mm-hmm. can just, you just see the tunnel ahead in this one road. And then, you know, five years down the line, like, you know, you stick your head out of the sand a little bit and you're like, all right, like all the other roads, I don't know where they lead. I don't know if I can mm-hmm. even take them. But you stayed in running, you know, like Brad is like, what, you're going to, you're going to walk away from McKinsey. And you're going to be like a writer now. Like what? It, you know? <laughs> yeah. But so, but so to be fair, you know, it, it's, it's funny. I, um, I recently wrote a column about this for New York magazine. So the, the way that I made that transition, it wasn't like all at one point. So mm-hmm. following public health school, um, I took a gig that was still in consulting and still in healthcare. It was much less high pressure, high stress than McKinsey. Yeah, but this is a very inconvenient narrative that you're spinning right now. Like we just <laughs> want to know that we just want to think that you like no, swi- no. you flick that switch. I wish I don't have the. Gut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very yeah. hard to have the guts to do that. Don't interrupt with reality. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so he, like we were talking about this before we started recording, like reality. Um, so yeah, like I, I didn't just make the jump to writing. I decided that it was something that I really wanted to do, and I started doing it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And then I went down to eighty percent at my job, and then seventy percent. And I still do part time consulting. Um, and and it's allowed me, I, I would say, to like take more shots in writing. And, and maybe if I make the jump fully. Who knows, maybe like instead of two articles a week, there'll be four, but maybe I'd work myself into the ground. So I guess back to your point, like, yes, there is, there, there are those times where there's an inflection point and you just make the jump. But I also think that you can identify other interests or paths that you might want to be on mm-hmm. and test them without making the jump and, and then see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that because it's incredibly sensible, you know what I mean? It And it, and it does you know, it's a counterpoint to that, you know, that internet meme of like, you know, follow your passion and everything else be gone. You know what I mean? And it's like, life's more complicated than that. And it's more nuanced than that. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean quit your job. It means like, you know, taking those tiny steps and not knowing where they're going to lead and having faith that it's going to, you know, set you on some kind of trajectory where more will be revealed. There's actually, there's a, there's a study that showed that entrepreneurs that started their venture while still holding on to their current job were more successful than entrepreneurs that made a... Leapt all the way in. Exactly. Interesting. And the, the researchers speculated that um, this is like in the Harvard Business Review. So this is like you know, corporate world stuff. And, and I guess a lot of these entrepreneurs were probably starting new, new startup ventures. Um, the researchers speculated that because they had something safe on one end, they actually probably took greater risks with higher payoffs on the other. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I wouldn't have thought that, but that makes complete sense. Yeah. Of all the people that you kind of interviewed and the studies that you uh, reviewed and all the research that you did for this book, what was the most surprising thing that you came across? Oh, man. Um, 
I think personally the most interesting is we went out and um, met with the guys who essentially started Google's like meditation unit essentially now it's called search inside yourself and has branched off but you know I've been a runner so I considered like that my my form of therapy now that like I have a good relationship with it I'd go out on runs and just have clear headspace and you know think about things and and that was my form of meditation but mm -hmm. I never had any meditation practice and and sitting there and listening to these guys and explaining the brain science behind it and explaining the practice behind it uh, I was sitting there thinking like oh my gosh like this is exactly what goes through my head my athletes heads in the middle of races in the sense that what they explained meditation was or one of the benefits of it is that when you have like an intrusive thought or a stress response right there's either it either goes stress to straight reaction where you have mm -hmm. emotional reaction from it and what meditation allows you to do is have space between that like and have space to make a decision mm -hmm. and with myself and my runners that I coach it's what we've always talked about is when that point in a race comes and you're really hurting and you're like you have that almost like that freak out moment where you're like oh I can't do this and I'm just gonna slow down and, and forget about it and a lot of times when you choose that like slow path and just like I'm gonna back off it's because like instant stress because like I can't do this those thoughts going crazy in my head leads mm -hmm. to instant like emotional response and what we talk about is having a calm conversation which is creating space in between that where you can almost like rationally talk yourself out of it and like not out of it but like accept it and be like yeah this hurts but it's supposed to hurt like this isn't necessarily bad this is how it's supposed to be so i'm going to do the best that i can within it mm -hmm. and i think like that connecting like these two very different worlds that i wouldn't have put together was really like an aha moment for myself yeah, the implementation of the meditation and mindfulness programs at, at Google were really a reaction to like recognizing the fact that they have these coders there that are just going to work, you know, until they drop dead. And that if they wanted to create, you know, some yeah. sustainability around the employment of these brilliant people, they were going to have to figure out a way to take care of them. Right. And 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 really that space that you talk about is is like a superpower mm -hmm. because it, even if it's just a microsecond where you have enough awareness to make a conscious decision about how you're going to respond as opposed to react in a given scenario that can change your life you know if you're doing that on you know on a micro basis like a million times a day like it really becomes like a very very powerful thing yeah exactly i mean that's it it drove me to start my own meditation practice mm -hmm. in addition to running so I think that is like again a very mind-opening thing for me because it's you know you if you don't dive deep into it you think like oh okay meditation like I get that like it's kind of new agey but like I get it behind it but once you like experience that like just you know as you said microsecond of space that gives mm -hmm. you that that moment to pause and have almost that awareness to almost like choose your path mm -hmm. instead of just being this reactive being who just like up oh, this happens like here's my emotions i'm going that way you are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being 
this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Speaking of superpowers, you know, there is, I've talked a little bit about this recently, um, and I'm interested in your thoughts on it. You know, we're in this arms race for attention right now, where we're constantly being enticed and and sort of romanced by all of these apps uh, to achieve, to get our focus right. And so, to be able to have discipline around that uh, for the sake of the greater goal that you're pursuing or whatever you're trying to achieve peak performance in requires this added level of discipline that I feel like 10, 15 years ago. I mean, when yeah, I was, totally. when I, you yeah. know, I was like, that didn't exist. And yeah. now we're contending with something that's so powerful that is constantly taking me out and taking me away from the thing, the greater, the greater goal and the greater good. So how do you do, you know, how do you guys think about that? What is in our Edward and Snowden CAA Doubletree yeah. top secret room? What is not on the table? where we're having a conversation. Our phones. Bingo. Mm -hmm. So what we learned is that it is a futile effort to try to resist the temptation of your phone or whatever other device is there that connects you to the world. And that to think that you have the discipline to do so is almost always gonna be a fool's errand. And that the, the best bet is just to remove the phone or whatever that devices that's connecting you to the world literally from from your site altogether mm -hmm. um, we came across research that showed that simply having a phone on the table even if it was turned off and isn't yours 
interferes with your ability to think clearly, to be creative, to problem solve. Because you're just looking at it and like, can you, when can I look at it? Yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, I mean, your mind, like literally, if they've tracked this, like your brain, if there's a phone there, has like part of it that's like processing, like phone there, phone there, like expect ring, expect buzz, even if it's not your own. Yeah, it's So you'll, you'll have things like phantom rings where you'll feel, uh, you know, your phone vibrate and then you uh -huh. go down to check your phone and you don't have it in your pocket. Right. I have, I'm wearing like a Garmin watch and it's Bluetooth connected to my phone and every once in a while it like vibrates, but sometimes I imagine it's vibrating. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. I don't even have that. And it's exactly. like, I felt like it was, and I, and I look at, and I just like impulsively <laughs> like look at it and I'm like, this is insanity. It's not just you. Know? you. I, I, I want to yeah. say maybe I'd have to look at the book to, to, to be sure, but I think researchers from University of Wisconsin-Madison found that phantom vibrations like the majority of college students now feel them really what you i just, had no idea that yeah. was a thing that is i a thought thing. i was being oversensitive no. or something like that no. it's your brain adapting to have it right uh -huh. you're used to like that vibration so it will almost predict that it's going to happen at times right. wrongly mm. and you'll just feel that sensation but Did I, you, yeah, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, uh, I'm forgetting his name now. It's Tristan something. He was on Sam Harris's podcast recently, and he was on 60 Minutes, but he's like an ex-Googler, yeah. I think, who... He's teaming up with Ariana Huffington, I think, right he, now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's created this nonprofit that's all about, like, sort of educating people. Because he understands how they sort of, you know, bake the bread in terms of creating that addictive response that makes it impossible to not you know, sort of impulsively be using these devices in that unhealthy way. It's like going to the casino. I mean, we write in the book, if you think about your favorite app, odds are you are scrolling down or scrolling to the right, seeing a little ball, which is the slot machine doing its thing, and then having a potential reward, which is a retweet or a like or a mm -hmm. Facebook message. And what we argue in the book is that those potential rewards are as meaningful, if not more meaningful, than winning money because that is like a validation that you exist in the world and you are important. Like, mm -hmm. what is a more enticing reward than that? Right. So it's really Especially hard. Especially for Steve, who's trying to, who's struggling with his identity of 401. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm just on the phone. Yeah, no, I know. Please, someone like me. But it's, I mean, look, Brad, you have a, you, you have a pronounced presence, especially on Twitter. You know, Twitter is kind of like your medium and you've, you've hit like a kind of a sweet spot with it and you're sharing content. You're very involved there. So how do you create boundaries around that? It's hard. Um, you know, I could give you like a cookie cutter answer that wouldn't be true. It's something that I struggle mm -hmm. with for sure. Um, I think it's back to what I said about just removing the object of distraction. So when I sit down to write, my phone is, if I'm, if I'm at home, my phone's in another room. If I go to the coffee shop, my wife who's kind of anxious, hates this, but like, I don't even bring it because like all I'm going to do is look at it. It's not mm -hmm. when I'm going to the coffee shop. And she'll text me asking where you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, in, in the evening, I, you know, if I, if, if, if like I need to be there for, or not, I need to, I want to be there, right. And be present with my wife. Like I turn the phone off. Um, but yeah, like I, I struggle with it for sure. So I guess it's, it's a long winded way of saying, I try to be aware of when the phone will be a distraction that is unwelcome and not have the phone there. Mm -hmm. Now, before we like go down this road of just bashing technology in, in, in phones and especially Twitter, there's a lot of good. I met both of you on Twitter. Right. Yeah. So I, I have to always balance 
that that always comes in. You know, that's the 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 little guy on the other shoulder who's like, listen, man, this is how like you get to do what you do. You yeah. know, like my whole like living is sort of you know a result of the you know the online community. So, on in some sense, like I have to embrace that, but you not not at the not at the sort of you know cost of everything else right and it's like you know i think that there's a huge gray area finding out a healthy relationship um with your phone and with these devices but i mean i met steve on twitter so this book would not have happened not only are we collaborators we've become like best friends this friendship wouldn't have happened i love your work here we are sitting down having a great conversation and 90 percent of the people listening to this are listening to it on their phone right now Right. Exactly. So there's a lot of so there's a lot of good yeah. packed away in that device too. So I think it's it's not about you know good or bad. It's just about being mindful with what are the good things, what are the bad things, and how can you manage them. And for the less disciplined, there's a uh, there's a program called Freedom. You know this program? Yes, I yeah. use that. Do you? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you can you can install it on your phone, on your desktop, on your laptop, or whatever. And essentially, you can just set a timer, and it just prevents you from going online or using any apps for a set period of time. So that you know, if you don't trust yourself, but so if you're trying to write or whatever, you can just focus on that. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think any of us have the ability to trust ourselves. Like no one, mm-hmm. everyone likes to think like, oh, I'm like self-disciplined. Think we can. Yeah, like yeah, I can yeah, do yeah. it. Like I can write with like my Twitter and my Wi-Fi and everything on. But you can't. And I think coming to that realization and realizing like, no, like I don't have that power. I'm not like Superman mm-hmm. with my my phone. On a similar uh, on a similar note, uh, what do you guys think about? Um, all these trackable devices and the sort of quantified self movement that's happening right now. I mean, Steve's laughing, you know, as a coach of elite athletes and also, you know, Brad, who's interviewed a ton of people on rights for outside where they talk about all these things a lot. And it's always like, what's the latest thing? Um, how do you like, what's your perspective on, on all? Of yeah, that? it's tough because like, I'm a science nerd, like that's my background. So I love like data, but at the same time, from a practical standpoint and from a coaching standpoint, I think what they've done is they've made us lose touch with um, being able to pay attention to like what our internal sensations are doing. Mm-hmm. I know from a running standpoint, is like all the all the tracking data, all the GPS stuff, has made like people lose the ability to like internalize their pace and and their effort and they become reliant on like this little external thing. Yeah, I would I would venture to imagine that any elite runner on a track could tell you within a tenth of a second their splits exactly. per 400 meters just based on feel, right? It, exactly. And it's the same in swimming. Growing up, I could tell you exactly where I was because you're so in touch with your body. But once you abdicate that to a device, you t- you end up tuning out. And it, then there's a disconnect between you and yourself that is not serving performance. And that's the skill that needs to be developed. You know, the, the example I always give, if, if you watch like high school kids run, run a track race, right? Um, there's some of them who are who have developed that skill early on, and there's some who are entirely reliant. And what you do is if you stand at like the first lap, right? And you'll see, or the first mile in a 5K, you'll see runners all look at their GPS watch as it beeps, and you'll see certain ones just like go, oh my gosh, and slam on the brakes. Mm. And what they've done there is they've taken away listening to their internal self where maybe they were on their way to a breakthrough mm-hmm. and they, they were ready to come through the mile faster. 
But what they've done is they've abdicated that and looked at their watch and said, my watch is dictating and it says I'm too fast for what I should be, mm-hmm. even if possibly my internal sensations tell me otherwise. And they've just given away that breakthrough. Or the same thing happens on the opposite side, where maybe it's not a day where I can hit the splits that I need to and I need to listen to my body. But they'll just like, like you know, robots be like, oh, my watch is beeping at, you know, six minutes a mile and I need to be on six minutes a mile. It takes the wonder out of sport. It you does. know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm only I'm only as good as this spreadsheet and I know what I've what I've hit, you know, in every week leading up to this. So there's no way that I'm gonna be able to to eclipse that in any way. So I just need to like, you know, hit the mark that the data is telling me I'm capable of, as opposed to like throwing all that out the window and just racing. It it holds you back, you know. Uh, I think the best example I can give is um professional runner I coached named Natasha Rogers, who just won the U.S. Half Marathon Championship. When we started working together, she'd been hurt for two years and just had this horrible, um, horrible relationship with running. Mm -hmm. So she was so bad that for three months, the first three months we were working together, she refused to wear any watch. And at the time I was like, all right, that's that's a bit extreme, like especially like if I'm looking, you know, I kind of want to know like what your tempo run is or right. something what so I doing. can adjust <laughs> yeah. instead of being like, uh, go run, go run hard yeah. today, you know? Yeah. And is your heart rate at like it, 180 or 120? <laughs> you <know>? Right. <laughs> you know, you have no idea. But in a lot of ways, I think what it did is it gave her the ability to like listen to her body more than anything. And if you watched how she ran this this half marathon that she won, it was a huge breakthrough for her. And she ended up going out with with the leader who she, on paper, had no, like, business, no reason, yeah. no business to be with. But she wasn't looking at her watch. She had no idea what her splits was were. And she was like, I just felt good. And, like, it felt within my realm of possibility. And then, you know, at mile 10 of the half marathon, she said, I just felt good. So I decided to take the lead. Hmm. And it led to this huge breakthrough that, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, I don't think she could have had because she would have, you know, said, oh, this is too fast. I can't right. do this. If you're geeking out on the data too much, thinking uh, I'm way outside my range, I'm going to blow up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's the same as it is with with the tech. Like, it's about your relationship to it, right? Like, I think you need to have that that. Um, you know, that time without it so that you develop that understanding and that connection with yourself. And it's a tool. Like if you have a responsible relationship to it, it can inform your training and it can make you better. But I think, you know, the idea that like all these numbers are going to like somehow translate into you being a peak performer, I think is myopic. Exactly. It's you feedback, know. right? You can't right. be a slave to the data. Well, or, it shouldn't like, drive the horse. I'm all about peak performance because <laughs> every night, you know, I plug my Garmin in and I track my sleep. And all, it's like, what does that really mean? And, like, and you what know, is that, how is that making you a better performer the funny, or a better human? The funny thing about that is, like, with sleep is they've actually shown in uh, a couple research studies that show that, like, the quality of sleep goes down because You're it neurotic. makes them... Anxious and yeah, like, I have to perform tonight exactly. in this sleep, you know, and it's like the pressure is on me. I'm looking at my watch like, am I going to hit? How long is that deep phase going to be? Yeah. Uh, unless unless someone is coming out of like clinical insomnia where they've actually lost their biological clock, 
significantly more accurate than any device you're going to wear on your wrist to tell you if you got a good night's sleep is like when you wake up, do you how feel you, well rested? You know immediately. Right. How you Are you feel? falling asleep at yeah. 3 p.m. in the day? And uh, in, in, in like the margin of error of that is a lot less than, than the device. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, like, otherwise I've got nothing to add. You guys nailed it. It's a tool and context is key and it can hold you back in certain circumstances. It's a helpful tool. Does Outside Magazine call you up and ask you to write articles <laughs> about wearables? Um, <laughs> <laughs> can you answer yeah, that yeah. off, off the record? Like, um, yeah. yeah, it's, it, 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 it's interesting because like they, they are a product um, and like lots of products, like they claim to be the panacea to a lot of things and mm -hmm. I, they're not. Um, but like you said, like they're a tool. So I actually, Outside's a great magazine. My, my only article on wearables for Outside was called Listen to Your Gut. Mm. Um, so they let me do that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So you, 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 you were able to put your spin on it and still deliver the goods. Well, yeah, I, I think, love I mean, outside. I, I, I'm not bashing it. Totally. Please don't. Under, yeah, like I love outside, man, and I love the work that you do for them. So I'm, it's like I always read outside. It, um, yeah, it, it, it. But I guess my point is, like, I had full editorial freedom, and like, what uh -huh. the what the story said is the discussion that we've been having, which are like, yeah, tools can help, but if you rely on them, you become fragile, and you might end up holding yourself back. Right. And it's not fun. Mm -hmm. Like, if you count every single step you take, when are you going to, like, have a moment of joy of, like, taking that step? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of been something that I've been focused on lately. Like, I haven't, I haven't raced in five years, and I'm doing this race in September, and so I'm kind of getting back into structured training in a way that I haven't in Rich looks many super years. fit, by the way. And, uh, <laughs> trust me, I'm not, like, not, not, I'm not, actually, but... But my life is is really a lot busier, more complicated than it was like in 2009 and 2010. <clears throat> and so the journey for me is like being okay with that. Like I'm not gonna be able to train like I'm living in a, you know, in a hut by myself. Um, and, I've, and I've gotta find, like the purpose of it is to use it to carry a message that's helpful to other people, a positive message, like that's the purpose. Um, and, and the underlying kind of current that supports that purpose is finding the joy in the day-to-day -day of the training, because I love the training, but if I'm so caught up in performance, it, it undermines that sense of joy and ultimately it's gonna harm my performance. But I'm going into it knowing like, you know, when I show up at the starting line, like. I probably could have trained harder, you know, and it's like I have to be at peace with that, which is uncomfortable for me because I want to toe the line thing with sure. knowing that I did everything possible. And it's just not my life right now. And what I would have to sacrifice for that, the cost of that is too much because then I'm not sitting with you guys doing a podcast or writing another book. I'm just, you know, riding my bike all day. And I don't know that that's really of service to anybody. For sure. So, so it is, yeah, it's like finding that joy. And that's that's been a little bit of a, that's, there's some discomfort with that, like, because that's acclimating to a different perspective on performance than I'm used to. Yeah, it, it, it goes back to that original definition that I offered around performance being sustainable and you feel good about it. Mm -hmm. And that changes over one's lifespan because if you're, you know, 23, 24 year old rich wanting to swim in the Olympics, then at that time, it's probably sustainable to swim a lot more. And what might make you feel good is really going for it. Trying to trying to be in the Olympics, then it's having the self awareness right now to say, you know what, like what is sustainable and what's going to make me feel good, isn't to go live in a hut and put my head down and just train. It's to do it in this greater context. So I would argue that you are 
like nailing your peak performance you've just sh- you've had the self-awareness to shift the parameters yeah i think it it plays into the theme of of the book pretty pretty clearly in the sense that you know you are saying in the book like there's this there's this sort of default mentality if like if you want to achieve peak performance you got to like sacrifice mm-hmm. you got to like remove all distractions from your life and just put 110% of everything that you do 24 hours a day into you know optimizing yourself to achieve this particular goal. But like human beings don't work that way. We don't function long term in that way. Like I I had an amazing conversation with Carrie Walsh Jennings about this, you know, and she's like, I mean, look at the sustainability of her performance over like five Olympiads. It's crazy, right? And I'm like, do you think you'd be a better volleyball player if you weren't married and didn't have kids? It's like, she has a busy life. Like, you know, she's a mom in like a big way and she shows up for her kids. She's not like a mom in word only, like she's there. She's like, no, this this enhances my ability to perform at, at my peak. Whereas most, like on paper, the math of that is like, this is, a, this is time away from your training. This is an energy drain where she needs that to support her. Um, and, and so it doesn't work like it, like we were saying at the beginning, it's not a linear equation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I mean, <laughs> you don't have to say anything. It, no, it, it's it, true. Like you know, uh-huh. it, it, it's funny. Uh, one of the pro athletes I coach, Sarah Hall, really has done phenomenal. Oh my phenomenally God. Well, uh, she, and she four has kids all like four overnight, kids, overnight, yeah. literally. And it yeah. was literally and adopting. a husband. It's a bodybuilder. Yeah. yeah, I know. Like I see those sponsored ads popping up on Instagram now where he looks like a superhero. Know, it's not like, I don't yeah. know how she doesn't like, I don't know how she, cause she's a yeah. fantastic mom. But I, I think that that shows it is like, right. That having it's not about like being selfish and being obsessed about it in that way. You think that's the message we're given is that in order to reach our maximum potential, we need to like be all in, forget everything else mm-hmm. in the world, forget everybody else, and that's what it. It's all we have to do. Mm-hmm. And I think these examples, like Carrie Walsh, Sarah Hall, like they're great examples of people who are at the top of their game, have been for a while, and have these diverse other you know activities and things going on in their life um so it's not about sacrificing necessarily it's just about figuring out how to prioritize and like getting the most out of yourself given those priorities yeah and i think people can can um get comfort out of that because i think a lot of people are thinking well my you know it's like look man i'm just trying to you know i got kids i got this i got that like yeah it would be great if i didn't have any of that and then i could just you know pursue my goal but that's not my life but to understand that, like even people that are performing at the absolute elite level of whatever it is they're pursuing have the same challenges and 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 are welcoming those distractions into their lives as part of the success equation you know lynn manuel miranda um behind Hamilton, he said that he he credits the spaces between writing sessions for that show. And he talks about, like, I think he says that, you know, it's when I was playing with my kid with trains that a scene came into my mm-hmm. mind. And he could have put in more work, like, at the whiteboard or, or at his notebook. I'm not sure exactly how he writes. And maybe the show wouldn't have been as good because, like, there is this space in between where, in his case, like, insight occurred. Um, so it kind of gets back to that stress plus rest equals growth. Um, in, in like realizing like the rest is not just there in lip service. Like the magic happens, not when you're applying the load it happens mm-hmm. when you're at rest. Right. And back to that discipline about making sure that you carve out that time. 
you still have to work hard though. Like I like it's funny people. What we don't want is people to think like, oh, like I can just like rest <laughs> yeah. and like chill out. Like That's you got to work the, hard the too. Clickbait headline, you know, to this podcast is you know, <laughs> don't rest work. your way to <laughs> yeah, rest your way to peak performance or something like that. No, right? no, no. You've you, you've got to you've got to work hard for sure. Um, but I think that it's the people. It's like Steve said. I think that you know individuals can get very very easily caught up in work 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 so mm -hmm. i think that the the kind of counterintuitive message is is the one of rest so that's the drum that we're hitting loudest but i mean you'll see in the book um everyone that we spoke with that is world class i mean they they also put in the work mm -hmm. yeah of course right there's no there's no end around that i mean on the on the subject of work like what do you steve in dealing with these you know incredibly elite athletes and, and being, you know, integral in the in the running, not just track and field, but the running community at large. What do you see? You know, there's a lot of runners that listen to this podcast. So, like, what you know, what are the mistakes that you commonly see where you're just like, Ugh, really? Like all these people, I'm at a 10k or I'm at a half marathon. Like, you, you mean, doesn't that doesn't she know that if she just did this, it would be so much easier. You mean, what are the things that Brad does? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Brad, what are you doing wrong? No, I, what is getting in the way of your peak performance, uh, Brad? You know, you know, I don't have Steve as my yeah. coach. I, I think a lot well, of it. I, does, isn't that baked into the deal that you guys have? It should have been. You're not getting free coaching? <laughs> I renegotiate. Uh, I think a lot of it is like people try to go places before they're ready to go places. What I mean that is, is one of my core like coaching principles is like don't go there before you need to go there, which means a lot of times people get like super excited of, like I got a marathon coming up or I'm gonna do my first half marathon and I'm gonna go you know zero to hundred percent in this short amount of time, uh -huh. and then what happens is they they just fail or they get hurt or they have a horrible experience and then they just kind of like abandon it or go into a slump for a while and then come back out of it and get motivated and try and do something. Because they bite thing. off a huge goal and then they can't consistently show up to prepare for that? Exactly. And and one, one of the things from a coaching standpoint I always say is like, you know, you're looking at maximizing adaptation and to do that, like you need a Patience. challenge or stimulus that's just a little bit more than you can than you've done before but like not 2x 3x 4x mm. and then you just have the have to have the patience to be able to like all right you know this week i'm a little bit better than last week the next week i'm going to be a little bit better and then a little bit better instead of going for these huge chunks because what you see is like regardless of the level it's the people that can put in consistent solid work not like brief periods of insane work that do the best over time. Right, like you can't cram for it. Exactly. Right? You can't go from surfing surfing Venice Beach to surfing Mavericks overnight. Right. Like, and the guys yeah. that surf Mavericks, like how do you surf Mavericks? Well, they just inched up to it over a very long period of time so that by the time they're surfing Mavericks, it feels like a wave they're used to surfing. Exactly. Right? Compression gear. I think huge you in the Huge in the tri community, but anathema in like, with pure runners, right? Yeah. Is that still the case? Uh, for the most part, totally it is. not cool, right? For the most part, <laughs> compression gear is is interesting. Um, you know, my this is way off. I just had to ask. It, it, my one my one tip is this. So, like the compression gear, the like, have you seen like the Normatec pants that are yeah, like yeah, air yeah. compression? Like, if you go stand in like the 
the pool, like the shallow end of the pool, mm-hmm. you'll actually get more compression than any either of those more things More than Normatec? Do. Really? Yeah. Just from the water pressure? Yeah, That's the true. water pressure. You're the scientist. I, Right? Seen the research. Yep. Really? It's true. So, like, with my you athletes. Hop in the pool. And we're yeah. And they're like, oh, I need to wear, like, my compression pants and stuff. I'm like, gosh, go splash around in the pool. Like, you'll get the same thing. Uh-huh. So Same with the socks and everything. Yeah. yeah. Even so when that, you're getting on an airplane. Guys, we've got a new product. We need to, we need <laughs> yeah. to be at Kona with, like, these, like, little tubs of water, like, right at the Kona airport for after the race and just have people, like, stand in the tub on their way to security. All right. Enough bashing of the triathlon community. I will say this about triathletes. They are experimenters. They are. Yes. And so they're the first, they're early adopters yes. of lots of things. And I think those things, the, the good ideas ultimately percolate down into other, yes. into other sports. Um, and they're some of the best athletes. Like yeah, in, incredible like athletes. Well-rounded, so strong. And, uh, you know, there's the, the ideas going around now, like the Wim Hof stuff, the breathing and the cold therapy. Like, you know, are you familiar with that yeah, at all? Yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, well, make, are uh, you making a weird face? Uh, no, no uh, uh, I mean, I'll put it, I'll put it this way. If you, if you look back to, like, meditation and, like, uh-huh. we talked about in running, right, and how, like, if you apply a stress or a pain and then you create space, all I would say is that, if you do some of that like Wim Hof stuff, forget you know, we'll ignore the breathing for now, but getting in the in the cold and you create this like sensation of like, you know, almost like stress response, pain, discomfort, whatever. Essentially what you're trying to do is figure out a way to cope and deal with that. Mm-hmm. And the breathing technique is essentially teaching you like one way to deal with it, whether it works or not, whatever, but it's developing a skill set to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd probably get the same benefit, and I've tried this with some of my runners, is like, hey, jump in an ice bath, like make sense, accept it in your brain, however you cope with it and then translate that into running and accepting pain and you'll see you'll see some benefits so i don't necessarily think it's like oh this guy's figured out how to control you know his body reactions like anything like that like we can already do that to some degree um i think it's just like putting yourself in a stressful situation and then figuring out how to cope with it. Yeah, well, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, learning how to be comfortable with discomfort exactly. is, a, is a huge thing, right? And Brad, that's something you talk about quite a bit and finds its way into your writing. So that's going to spill over into everything that you do. Exactly. Right? I mean, that's the whole key to, I mean, any almost any endurance athletic endeavor is like being comfortable one of one of my favorite studies of all time had college students start an exercise program mm-hmm. and make themselves uncomfortable physically while exercising and then it measured their stress response during exams so their biochemistry as well as like how they reported stress and the individuals that went at it hard in the exercise program had less stress during their exam period Mm. to our totally on on its face disconnected but exercise and what's so great about a physical practice it's all relative so for steve it might be running four minute miles for me it might be running six minute miles for you know my wife might be running eight minute miles but it's learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable like you just said and once you can do that that transfers like quite broadly Mm -hmm. what is the most uh let me rephrase that. Let, let me rephrase this. I'm trying to think of how to articulate this. So in the course of, of researching this book, 
um, I'm sure you came across people that have like sort of freak performances, like that were almost inexplicable, right? Like massive, you know, massive gains that were like beyond like what people thought humanly possible. Like, did you come across examples of that, or is there any kind of like literature on explaining that kind of stuff outside of a doping context, I suppose. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you kind yeah. of refer to it like with the lifting the car kind of thing. So it, it gets back to purpose. Um, I think that the, the ones that are legitimate, that weren't, weren't aided by performance-enhancing drugs, um, when individuals tend to break through their own limits, they tend to report being fueled by something that is beyond themselves. Mm -hmm. um, we saw that in athletes, but we also saw that in an artist, a sculptor, that was dealing with some fear and some insecurity and lack of patience for the financial and business side of art. And for him, it was coming back to his purpose, reminding himself of it, and really meditating and reflecting on it that allowed him to break through and become an internationally acclaimed sculptor. So again, um, you know, for me, the most fascinating thing in the book, when we went into this, we had a hypothesis that there might be some connections, but we actually thought that like we'd learn stuff from art that could be applied to sports and learn stuff in sports that could be applied to business. And while there was a fair amount of that, I'd say there was equal, if not more, parallels of these like universal principles that mm -hmm. applied across the board. Um, in, in where breakthrough was, there tended to be uh, some sort of some sort of very strong, deeply held purpose. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the connection between um, fear, failure, and identity. Because when you're driven by purpose, then the the missteps along the way or the failures along the way aren't even really failures. You're just because you're committed to this higher vision. Exactly. They don't. They're just like bumps in the road that don't mean as much as they would if your identity is tied up in whether you're gonna achieve this short-term goal or not. Um, <clears throat> and I think that that, you know, that's huge, right? That's absolutely huge. I mean, you talk, you, you've written also about um, like visualization, right? Like, and that's part of the priming thing, but like, and we're taught to like visualize success and to be kind of, you know, positively minded, but there's value in visualizing failure. Like, what does that feel like? Like, what's the worst case scenario? Like, how bad would that feel? And if you can be okay with that or comfortable with that, then you can dissipate the fear that surrounds that. And it has a biological impact. I mean, there's some of my favorite studies to point out to, to runners I coach is it's been a slew that looked at like testosterone levels in athletes after they've won or lost games. Mm -hmm. And not only testosterone levels at that point, but then in during or prior to their next game. And what's really interesting is like if they failed, how they viewed that as they saw it as like an attack on themselves. Right. Or if they saw it as like a teaching moment where they watched their failures and then, you know, with the coach discuss, like, mm -hmm. how do I, you know, get around this? that will actually influence hormones like testosterone. And what's really interesting in some related research is that that testosterone level, like if it drops post game, let's say they watch a failure and they think that, or they watch mistakes of a game and they mm -hmm. think they failed. If that testosterone drops, then it'll stay low the next game and it will essentially predict mm. their performance the next game. Oh, that's amazing. Wow, that's super fascinating. That's incredible. Um, 
Yeah, I think uh, I think there's so much. It's so interesting how the, there's so much science going on right now in this world, and that we're able to like quantify some of this stuff and calibrate it. Yeah, you know what I think it finds is it's it's fascinating to look at, but what it does is it like almost validates some of the intuitive things that mm -hmm. you know either great coaches or smart thinkers or just people have been through some of these process have kind of like figured out. And, th and that's what we found in this book is that a lot of these performers were doing things and then like we'd say, oh, we found some science on this stuff. And they're like, like oh, yeah, yeah that makes course. sense. Yeah. You know, of course. But they're already doing it yeah, and they I mean, figure it out. Right. It's like the, yeah, the, the purpose stuff. Yeah. Victor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning like in the late 40s or early 50s, shortly after the Holocaust, maybe 60s. I'm not sure exactly when, but well before we were neuroimaging mm -hmm. people's brains while they were reflecting on their purpose. This guy said, like, that if you have a reason to live that's beyond yourself, you'll live. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, like, like to Steve's point, a lot of this stuff is intuitive, but now we are validating it, proving it, and learning more about it. Right. And Ryan Hollow gave you guys a blurb, said essentially that in his blurb. He's like, it's so great to read this book that just validates everything I believed and thought <laughs> yeah, my whole life. He said. <laughs> yeah, like, but it's true, like when you grow up as an athlete, and maybe this is more specific to individual sports or endurance sports than, than team sports, like I grew up with a lot of these ideas that you talk about in the book, and they're like intuitive to me. Um, and then you're like, oh man, like all these business people are going to read this book who didn't have that experience that I had. And they're going to learn something about how to like be more effective in their job or whatever it is that they're doing. And, 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 and in certain respects, it is sort of self-evident, but to see that, um, reflected back in other people's experiences who are pursuing other disciplines and then have science to support it is, is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so, um, at least I hope so. That That's our objective with the yeah. book. But um, in, in even like myself, it, it really made me realize that there are, I mean, very few people have the privilege to be professional athletes. So for those of us that are like myself that are, I don't know, I train like eight to 10 hours, sometimes 12 mm -hmm. hours a week. So like I'm, and I'm an athlete. You're looking fit yourself. It's a part of my identity yeah. for sure. But it made me realize that there are so many things that I do in my eight to 12 hour hobby that I don't do in my career, in my, mm. in my profession, that I could apply to that, that has made me like a significantly better writer. Um, so that was like really eye-opening. Even someone that lives it in sports didn't necessarily see how it could then translate off the field. Yeah, I think I struggled with that in my own life. And I just looked at it like, well, that chapter's over, and I was jealous Bingo. of people that like loved playing the guitar or loved business or something that they could pursue their whole life. And it's like, why did I choose to be <laughs> passionate about this thing that I got to stop doing when I'm 20? You know, it's like my life hasn't even started yet. You know, and I and I and I always thought like, oh well, all of this sort of like hard work ethic that I had will probably translate into other areas of my life. But I struggled with that because I could, I didn't have a purpose, and I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. So all of that, all of that, all of those skills that I developed weren't finding a home in these other areas. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of our hopes out of this book too is to get people to start thinking like out of their siloed domains and mm -hmm. start thinking like, okay, like all of this can apply in other areas, you know, from an athletic standpoint, um, especially a college athletic standpoint, I see athletes in every sport who don't have that understanding of like, this can help and translate mm -hmm. into the next area of my life, my next step. 
Um, and you see that in a lot in professional sports where athletes finish and they're like, all right. That's the identity crisis. It's major. You know, it's an epidemic. It it is. And I feel like the organizing bodies of these various sports really need to get more actively involved in these athletes' lives to prevent that from happening. I I, I think that the damage from that is severe. It's incredible. And I think it's it's something that, as you said, needs to be addressed. And then, you know, our hope at least is that people realize that those tool sets that you develop can transfer over. Mm -hmm. It's just about figuring out how to use those best in almost any endeavor. Right. All right, we gotta wrap this up in a couple of minutes, but um, one thing that's on my mind is, you know, other than this kind of conventional wisdom of go big and go home, for lack of a better phrase, you know, what other, what, what other kind of conventional ideas are out there about peak performance that you were able to kind of rebut or revise as a result of the journey of writing this book? You, you know, I think one of them is that it can be hacked. So we're, we're all about like quick fixes and hacks mm-hmm. and everyone wants to like cut down the time to, to nothing that they can do. Um, and I think what we found in talking to uh, you know, great performers across domains is that's not what occurs. There I've is... never met an elite performer who's focused on hacks. Exactly. I like, like, I like all of your stuff, Rich. My favorite thing that you've ever produced is that blog post on... Why you should stop hacking your life. Yeah. Yes. Yep. yep. Mm. That's it. Um, there, like there are like a, you know like I said yeah you have to rest but you also have to work hard. Um, there are there are very very few shortcuts, and often the shortcut is like running ninety miles a week instead of a hundred. Mm-hmm. Like that's not really a shortcut. Um, well, I think it goes to the mindset too. If you're looking for a hack or if you're looking for a shortcut, then you're not in the mindset to achieve what we define as peak performance. Yeah, I think that you have to define your terms. I mean, if you're defining hack as a, as like an interesting new good idea, like there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But if right. you're defining it as a shortcut or an end run, exactly, um, right. then I think you're being short-sighted. So an example is um, sleep. So there's been a flurry of like hack your way to sleep. So take like you know six naps every hour and a half or wear this brain stimulation device that you'll hit a button and it'll be like you slept eight hours. Well, when you talk to sleep scientists, they, I mean, they're scientists. They're like, maybe that could work, but we've yet to see the evidence that that could work. Um, And even just shortcutting your own sleep, like that's not even in the framework of a hack, but like, oh, I I only need five or six hours of sleep. Um, And that is true for no one. Like, a bare minimum seven hours of sleep to support whatever performance, whether that is intellectual, artistic, physical, or even like being a good spouse. Like there's all kinds of emotional processing that happens in your sleep. Um, So there's an area where like I just irk when I hear someone talk about like hacking your way to sleep Mm -hmm. um, because like it's just there's no evidence to support it. when in fact, all the evidence is the opposite, which is like, it's it's almost hard to sleep too much. Right. I, you're, listen, you're preaching to the choir with this stuff. You know what I mean? We could do yeah. a whole podcast yeah, on yeah, that yeah. one. This yeah. kind of, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I think that, you know, people, people want to hear that there's an easier way. You know what I mean? And yeah, like there, there are always easier ways and perhaps you can achieve whatever goal you set for yourself by taking shortcuts. 
but it's just not that interesting to me. You know what I mean? Like if you want to, if you're if you're pursuing it with your heart, then I would imagine you're trying to achieve some kind of value from that experience that is going to you know give your life purpose or meaning. And if you're focused on trying to find the quickest way there, then I think you're missing the beauty of just embracing what comes with you know the longer road. Totally. Uh, yeah, Ryan Holiday, who I know you've had in the show, I think that he he wrote in one of his books that basically like you're all we're all going to die, and like very few people, Julius Caesar, Jesus Christ, like very few people are we still talking about a couple hundred years later? It's not going to matter, right? So if the goal is the endpoint, you're like missing the boat because you're going to die. So you might as well like enjoy the journey and embrace the journey because like that's what you're going to experience. Very few people are going to remember that endpoint a mm-hmm. hundred years from now next to no one 200 years from now unless you do something really special in a thousand years from now like good luck right all right last question for you guys so let's say somebody's listening to this they're they're looking at their first 10k or maybe they're just trying to get a promotion at their job and they're like all right like peak performance these are new ideas to me like what are you know what's the main takeaway here what is you know what's one or two things that i could like hear from you guys that i could like incorporate into my life right away that that might you know give me some benefit so I think that it it goes back to what I led with but just this notion of the growth equation and trying to figure out like going through some goal setting and where do I want to be in one year two years three years and how how am I going to plot out those cycles of stress plus rest equals growth to get there Mm -hmm. and how am I going to do that over the course of a day so can I block my work into chunks with little abilities to recuperate we talk about in the book um, short walks looking at pictures of nature, listening to music, like there are all kinds of things. And again, you could call those hacks, but they're not really hacks. Like they're, they're good practices, ways to take breaks throughout the day um, to, to get more quality work done in a day. And then you think about over the course of a month or a week, and I'd say over the course of a career, like what projects can you take on that like Steve said, are ever so slightly out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So not zero to a hundred, but just make you a little bit uncomfortable. And then what's the next project that you take on after that? Um, in a relationship, like in a romantic relationship, like what are things that you can do with your partner that make your relationship, you know, just a little bit more uncomfortable? Maybe you get a plant, then you get a pet, then you have a kid. <laughs> like it, it's so universal how, at least I've interpreted this thinking like quite universally um, to, to really think about like what, what do you want to grow? What capability, what part of yourself do you want to grow? And how can you apply the right stimulus, reflect on it, digest it, recover from it? and then build on it. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be takeaway number one. And then I think my second takeaway that Steve alluded to earlier um, is just this, I hope you saw what you're gonna say, this, this notion that- just steal my thunder. <laughs> this, yeah. this notion that balance um, is kind of an illusion and it's really, really hard to, to be balanced and that's okay, but what's not okay is to kind of, I'm looking at Steve like I was gonna say, what's not uh-huh. okay is to mindlessly just go down a path because that's where your passion's taking you and to do it recklessly. Mm-hmm. So with Brad stealing my thunder, uh, I'll just layer on and I think it, it's about being intentional. It's being thoughtful and intentional on what you're trying to do and, and what you want out of it. And as I think we've we've talked about a lot now is like deciding where you go and how, how do you get that, but also making sure that you're not getting in your own way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of times what we do is both from Brad and I's stories of ourselves is like, essentially we 
got in our own way and like led us to burnout Mm -hmm. and whether it's something as simple as saying like i am easily distracted by my phone so if i'm gonna do something that i want to do well i'm gonna go put it in the drawer or like not bring it to the coffee shop you know the world didn't end you know 15 years ago when we didn't all have cell phones right Right. so i i think getting out of our way and then being intentional on what we're trying to accomplish is two takeaways that layer on top of brad's that i think are are really important yeah beautiful i mean i think you know sort of interwoven into that is um a commitment to uh self-understanding like self-knowledge right in the sense and what i mean by that is understanding like who you are and what drives you and being self-directed and intentional like you said about that not getting caught up in what other people are doing or being influenced by you know the distracting noise of whatever's going on on instagram or holding yourself up to some imagined uh you know, sense of balance mm-hmm. where everything has to be in proper, you know, check Perfect. at all times, yeah. or you're falling short as a human being sets you set yourself up for failure because you feel like internally you're falling short all the time. And that inevitably is going to lead to, you know, low self-esteem and self-defeatism. And then you're in this vicious cycle that's going to, you know, basically lead you to nowhere good. Exactly. Right? It's all, all awareness and perspective. And, you know, what one quick story I'll throw in there is my our good friend Phoebe Wright, who was who has run at the Olympic trials, when I was when we were talking to her about like how does she handle like being on the Olympic trials and like uh-huh. chance to make the Olympics and deal with all that stuff, you know, her answer was like, I remind myself that no one else gives a shit how I do, <laughs> and then it yeah. doesn't. Well, I put all this pressure on myself and think it's the end of the world. In the end, it doesn't really matter. Right? No one cares. That's beautiful. That's like a beautiful uh, expression of humility. Exactly. You know what I mean? And humility is huge. That's a that's in the book as well. Like how important to cultivate humility. Did you see the? Somebody sent me this video the other day. It was. Um, this collegiate track and field runner at Cornell, and she was talking about how like she she smiles like the whole time that she's running, and that's how she like had this massive like leap and her she had yeah. this huge like drop in her time, and she because it Love was it. yeah she was like it's engaging amazing. in her joy. Yeah, Chrissy Wellington you know? did that a lot. The, she did like, do that. Multiple, yeah, 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 that's true. That's neat. That's true. Did you see that video? Yeah, I you did. did. Yeah, I did. it's cool. Yeah, it's it was cool. amazing. Yeah, and I think, you know, to kind of round it out also, like a lot of people are just like, oh, this is, you know, convenient, but like I'm busy. And the truth is, like, I think everyone wastes so much time. You know, we're talking about our devices and and on that kind of vein of self-understanding and self-knowledge to really get honest with yourself about how you're allocating your time. Because I think we lie to ourselves or we're in denial about how we're actually spending our time. And if you got out a notebook and wrote down honestly what you're doing of 15 minute increments throughout the day i think most people would be shocked i know that i was i've gone through this process before oh my god like totally. look at all this free time i could have if i just stopped doing this thing that i'm getting no value out of anyway you know everyone comes up to brad and myself and they're always like oh man you guys like write so much and coach and like consult and do all these things and you wrote a book how do you have that much time you guys must be like on it all the time like you really watched us like there's there's hours spent like you know doing nothing and lazing around and it's it's because we're not perfect like everyone has this this mistaken idea that like oh you guys are machines and like Mm -hmm. you get stuff done but all of us have way way more time than we realize we do and i think that's a great uh 
place to put a pin in it. You guys wrote a great book, Peak Performance. I love it. Thank you for asking me to write a blurb. You have incredible blurbs here from so many people. Adam Grant, Ariana Huffington, uh, Daniel Pink, like Ryan Ryan Hall, Ryan Holiday also, awesome. Um, I love it. You guys did a really great job and I think this is gonna really help a lot of people. So congratulations and I'm excited for people to check it out. Thank you. Uh, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Did we do it? Yeah. Did yeah. we do the podcast? I, I, think, so. are all I right? think we nailed it. That was awesome. <laughs> all right. So Got to get a picture and uh, we'll and, do all and, that. And do all that. Yeah, we'll do but. all that. So uh, you can connect with Brad. Best place to find Brad is at B Stol- at B Stolberg on Twitter. Brad Stolberg is your is your uh, website. And Steve, you have uh, your Steve Magnus on Twitter and also scienceofrunning.com, right? Correct. Is that correct? Anywhere else people can find out what um, you guys are doing? Uh, we have a book website, uh, peakperformancebook.net. Ah, cool. Awesome, man. And so the book comes out June 9th? June, June 6th. 6th. June 6th. And uh, are you guys going to do the book tour thing and cruise around and give talks and all that kind of stuff? Or what's what's happening? We are. We're... Uh, we're uh, setting that up right now. All right. So Is that pay like attention top secret to our, or something? <laughs> our social media. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, 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 uh, it's coming together nicely. Yeah. yeah, no, we hope to be uh, to be in a couple of big cities um, and then also just on social media and uh, hopefully just continuing to have opportunities to write about this stuff. Yeah. Awesome, man. All right. Super nice to meet you guys. I appreciate your time. You guys, did, again, did a wonderful job on the book and uh, much love. Well, thanks a lot. All Thank right. you. Peace. Good dudes, great information. What more do you guys want? I thought that was awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of it. Do yourself a favor, pick up their new book, Peak Performance, and hit them up and me up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever your favorite social media is. Again, uh, Brad is at B Stolberg, S-T-U-L-B-E-R-G. Steve is at Steve Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S-S. And let them know what you thought of this conversation and their book. Uh, A couple announcements before I let you go. Julie's new book, This Cheese is Nuts, it's coming out June 13th. You can pre-order it now. Do us a favor and do that. Those pre-order numbers are super important in terms of enhancing the visibility of the book and influencing booksellers' order size. So if it sounds like something you would be into, it would be huge if you would uh, click that pre-order button from your favorite bookseller. We also have a thunderclap campaign to help get the word out on release date. Uh, Thunderclap is this really cool, simple to use crowdsourcing platform that basically allows you to pledge a social media post in support of the book that will automatically post your timeline on June 13th. I'll put a link up to that for those of you who are interested in supporting this. Uh, It's free, it's easy, it's simple, and it's just a cool little thing. Uh, Plant Power Ireland is coming up July 24 through 31. We're going to this amazing place. I keep calling it Ballyvalane, and all the Irish people keep tweeting me and telling me it's Ballyvalon, or I'm I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it, Ballyvalon. In any event, it's this extraordinary manor on 90 acres in the Irish countryside. We're taking a group of about 35 to 40 people. 
uh, to this location for an extraordinary seven days of transformation. Uh, we're going to do all kinds of stuff. We're going to cook. We're going to eat. We're going to run. We're going to meditate. We're going to do tea ceremony. We're going to have cooking instruction. We're going to eat an extraordinary menu that Julie designed, all plant-based, of course. We're going to have intense workshops on everything from creativity to relationships and you know, unlocking your best, most authentic self uh, and lots, lots more. So if this sounds like uh, your divine appointment, if it sounds like something you would be interested in learning more about, go to ourplantpowerworld.com. We got a few spots left. Uh, they're definitely going to go soon. So definitely jump on it if, uh, if you're intrigued. Um, also, we are giving away one free slot to this retreat, which is very exciting. That's like a $5,000 value. Uh, and you can enter to win when you purchase three copies of This Cheese is Nuts. And you can learn more about that uh, at srimati.com, S-R-I-M-A-T-I.com, or on my website, richroll.com. Just click on This Cheese is Nuts. You'll see it there on the homepage, and all the details are there. Also, uh, we just launched this new meal planner, the Plant Power Meal Planner. We're super excited about it. People are really digging it. They're sharing these recipes on social media, which is really awesome. Essentially, it uh, it's a program. It's an online program that allows you access to thousands of plant-based recipes, unlimited meal plans, grocery lists. Everything is totally personalized and customized based on your goals, your food preferences, your allergies, your time constraints. We've got great customer support from a team of experts seven days a week. There's grocery delivery in 22 metropolitan areas via Instacart. And all of this is available to you for just $1.90 a week. It's a great value. Uh, you can learn more. Just click on meal planner at richroll.com. You'll see it there at the top. Uh, and it'll take you right to the program. If you would like to support this show and my work, there's a couple of ways to do that. You can share it with your friends and on social media, leave a review on iTunes, make sure you subscribe. That is the most important thing to get those subscription numbers up. And we have a Patreon for those of you who want to support my work financially and major love to everybody who has done that it means a ton to me. Uh, if you would like to receive a free short weekly email from me, I send one out every Thursday. It's called roll call. Uh, it's basically five or six things I stumbled across over the course of the week, a product I'm enjoying, a couple articles I read, a podcast I listened to, a documentary that uh, I screened, just things that I find interesting, inspiring, enlightening, et cetera. No spam, no affiliate links or anything like that, just uh, some good stuff. And you can sign up for that by going to richroll.com forward slash subscribe or just entering your email address in any of those email window fields on my site easy to find. Uh, and while you're there at ritual.com, you can pick up some plant power merch and swag. We got signed copies of finding ultra, the plant power way. And now this cheese is nuts. We got t-shirts, tech tees, sticker packs, all kinds of cool stuff. I want to thank today's sponsors, me undies, the world's most comfortable underwear. Visit MeUndies.com forward slash roll to get free shipping in the U S and Canada and 20% off your first pair and Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. You can get 10% off at checkout when you use the coupon code richroll at checkout. So visit squarespace.com and use the code richroll at checkout. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Uh, thank you to everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production and work on the show notes and the script that I tried to riff on for all of these introductions. Uh, Sean Patterson for all the help on graphics and theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here soon. Have a great week. Make it count. Be well. Search out your own peak performance and figure out how you're going to sustain it over 
the long haul. That's what it's all about, right? All right, you guys, take care. I'm done rambling. Bye-bye. Peace. Plants. Yeah.